This is episode 100. How shall I proceed from here? If you've been with me since the beginning, if you've endured this journey with me from episode 1, I'd like to hear from you, to know who you are. I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the project, what I've achieved and what I've failed to achieve. In the first episode, I set out to put the puzzle of consciousness together, at least to assemble the basic pieces which are scattered about the library of human thought and evidence. From where we stand, 100 episodes out, we've assembled quite a few. Here before us, there are 100 puzzle pieces or so, some which are essential to the final image and some which belong to a different puzzle. Some of the pieces have clicked together and others remain alone, their positions in the picture still undetermined. So I've achieved the collection of ideas and resources necessary to write 100 distinct essays on consciousness. I've read a lot of books and peer-reviewed papers. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've reflected on those, and I think I've shared a few truly original thoughts, too. I know more now than I did at the beginning. My thoughts are clearer. One thing I have decidedly not achieved is great podcasting skills. I realize now that I've been writing this podcast for myself, for the ideal listener who knows what I know and has the background that I have. I have presented ideas in quick succession. Too quick, I think. If I were listening to a podcast like this on a topic that was outside of my expertise, I might not be able to follow it. To be sure, I would get some of it, but I would miss a lot. I have delivered the product for which I am the consumer, and that has been fruitful for me, if not for you. It's like a journal, the entries of which are meant for me to return to, but not intended to be a medium of communication. I'm starting to explore ways that I can improve upon this model and deliver a better, more educational product. But for today, for episode 100, it's more of the same. If you haven't liked the other episodes, you won't like this one. But if you have, thank you for sticking by me. I'm no great broadcaster, just an adventurous mind trying to figure out what in the hell I am. I hope today's discussion is an interesting one. American primary education fails entirely on philosophy, and even more so on Eastern philosophy, so I have very sparse exposure to Buddhism, for example. I read the Tao Te Ching when I was a teenager. I remember really liking it. Come to think of it, that was during the period when I was considering pursuing a major in comparative religion. It's interesting how much philosophy and religion seem to be intermixed in the Far East. Alan Watts was a British philosopher and writer who first popularized Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Taoism for audiences in the West. You can find some of his recorded lectures online. The following is a brief excerpt from one of those. Alan Watts said, quote, It is absolutely fundamental that anything that there is, whatever we can say that something exists, existence is a function of relationship. Motion itself is a function of relationship. For example, forgive me if you've heard this one before, but it's a very important basic lesson. If there is only one object, one small ball in the middle of endless space, nobody knows whether it is moving because you can't tell whether it is approaching anything or whether it's going away from anything because there is nothing else. So in that state of affairs, no motion exists. But if we introduce a second ball into the picture and the two either come towards each other or go away from each other, then we can say that both of them or either of them is in motion. We can't decide which is the one that's doing the moving because it could be one, could be the other. Now we will put three balls into space and we find two of them staying together and the other one going away. Now it's up to the two of them to decide whether the other one is going away from them or they are going away from the other because two is a majority in this case and the vote always, of course, goes to the majority. The universe being basically a democratic organization. 
and so it goes. Now once you've got that, you can see that motion is a form of relationship. All right, well let me put it in another way. Energy is a form of relationship. If the universe is basically a play of energy, then you can say energy and relationship go together. Now what is this saying? This is saying that being, existence itself, is relationship." Unquote. Admittedly, this sounds much better with a slow British delivery. In any case, I find his description of the physical universe in terms of motion and energy to be correct. He says that energy is a form of relationship. This makes sense, because if the whole universe had a uniform level of energy at all points, this would be indistinguishable from having zero energy. The baseline energy of space would be that amount, which is the same as zero unless it is being compared to something else, another universe perhaps. We tend to describe space in terms of dimensions, normally three dimensions, because we can use three points to locate any position, given an appropriate measuring device. In geometry, we do this with x, y, and z, and we connect points together into lines and figures, which we can describe in terms of one another. Two lines might be parallel, for example. It cannot be said that a line by itself is or is not parallel. Being parallel is a condition of relationship between two or more lines. It is my contention that the human mind is constructed of such geometrical relationships. What I mean to suggest is that the contents of consciousness are related to one another in a real physical way. The contents do not exist independently of the mind. They are relationships among constituents of a unified mind. This is why I'm not a dualist, even though I often speak in terms that sound dualistic. Let me explain. Let's have a coordinate plane with x and y dimensions, just those two. Let's place a line passing through two points and then add a second line through two other points such that we get two parallel lines. There are only two lines on the plane and they are parallel, so they do not intersect. And if they were extended infinitely out in both directions, they would never intersect either. That's all there is, two parallel lines. What folly would it be to seek the parallelness in the absence of the lines? It would be inane to be a ge geometrical dualist, in this sense, to suggest that there are figures and then there are separate essences which adhere to those figures and confer properties like parallelness. It isn't necessary to do so. Parallelness is not something in addition to the lines which have it. Likewise, there are the dynamics of the brain which give rise to conscious experiences. Consciousness, by analogy, is the parallelness. It doesn't exist in addition to the dynamics of the brain. The contents of consciousness are relational properties within those dynamics. At least that is my claim. When Alan Watts says that existence itself is relationship, I think he's right. The four forces of nature, the strong and weak nuclear forces, gravity and electromagnetism, are descriptions of the relationships. Come to think of it, I remember Joe Rogan frustrating Neil deGrasse Tyson on his show by asking too many questions about gravity. If I remember correctly, Tyson was trying to explain that gravity is the warping of space-time as a fundamental definition. Rogan was asking him why gravity does this. It's kind of a subtle point that Tyson was making, and it is reminiscent of dualistic thinking with regard to consciousness. Gravity is something which occurs in relation to mass. Without mass, there is no gravity. Gravity is not something in addition to the mass and the space-time in which it occurs. It is a relationship between mass and space-time. Like parallelness is the relationship between lines on a plane, gravity is not a thing on its own any more than parallelness is a thing on its own. Gravity is not doing anything. Rather, there is something which occurs in a certain way, and we call that occurrence gravity. The phenomenon exists, but it isn't a thing. 
Alan Watts says that existence is a relationship. This suggests, and I think it true, that even what we call matter is not a thing but a relationship. As we break down the world of matter into atoms in the hopes of finding the thing at its base, we find elements such as mercury and helium and so on, which describe the kinds of material that there are in the universe. Take a good long look at a periodic table of elements, though. What is this table? Is it a list of distinct things? Or is it a description of relationships that occur between neutrons, protons, and electrons? It's rather like a list of geometric shapes. If you take three points and connect them with lines, you get a triangle. Triangles have certain properties. If you connect four points, you might get a trapezoid or a rectangle. These shapes have certain properties. But they all occur in the relationship between lines and points on a plane. Likewise, the elements are all composed of these subatomic particles arranged as they do in nature. What are these subatomic particles, then? Well, don't look too closely, or you might notice that they are not particles after all. The electron is not, after all, a tiny little granule zipping around in orbit. Even the electron is a relationship rather than a material thing. So all matter seems to evaporate into relationships. The relationships, as it turns out, are the real thing which can be said to exist. The question is not, how does something come from nothing? Instead, it must be, how can nothing be arranged into relationships? Mysterious, yes, but closer to the truth. We can reason that there must be some kind of medium, some kind of space-time fabric composed of some kind of potential. There is not truly nothing, but one thing, perhaps, one fundamental unity or field which is expressed in the form of matter and energy, motion over time, waves and particles. What thoughts can we give to consciousness upon this basis? The following is from my 2021 paper called The Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, Reconciling Neuro Neuroscientific Theories with the Phenomenology of Consciousness. I wrote, quote, The brain is a material structure composed of interconnected neurons. Subcellular components such as axons, dendrites, and pre- and postsynaptic specializations are subject to local causal influences. An important clarification is needed in order to advance the scientific search for consciousness in terms of fundamental physics. Causality requires force. We tend to discuss neuronal function in terms of the movement of charged particles and the interactions of molecules. For example, we understand that sodium, potassium, and chloride ions moving across the cell membrane are responsible for the polarization and depolarization of the cell. We know that ion movement across the lipid bilayer requires protein channels, such as voltage-gated sodium channels. However, less discussed in the context of neuronal function is the fundamental force by means of which ions make a difference, namely the electromagnetic force, Lorentz force. There are four fundamental forces in physics. The strong force and the weak force which govern interactions within the atom, the gravitational force, and EM. Ions, biomolecules, and other material substances composed of atoms exhibit direct causality upon one another by means of EM forces. Thus, the TICL suggests that the temporally integrated causality of the system and its subsystems refers to a complex arrangement of electromagnetic fields. Care should be taken to avoid a naive conception of nested EM fields in the brain. The thalamocortical brain is a complex system, and human phenomenal consciousness is complex as well. Ultimately, we should expect simple fundamental principles to underlie consciousness as a phenomenon in the universe. Thus, the study of human consciousness by experimentation poses challenges for deriving those principles. The brain is essentially an EM field system. So the physical measurements we make will inevitably involve the interactions of the EM field. This is the same for all neuroscientific theories. 
However, TIC becomes formulated in terms of fundamental physics, its empirical verification will be achieved through measurements of EM field properties at a spatial and temporal resolution appropriate to the system and its subsystems. It would be a mistake to overcommit to a physical formulation of the TICL too early in its theoretical development. Without a doubt, this presents a limitation for distinguishing among frameworks by experimentation. But the purpose of this work is not to describe the winning theory in a competition. The purpose is to advance our theoretical understanding of consciousness and to be positively influential in the collaborative process of discovery." Unquote. The question is not, how does consciousness emerge from the material brain? The question is, how could material be arranged such that it is like something to be in that arrangement? Clearly it can because I exist and you exist. But for Christ's sake, the conscious mind is not a thing which exists in addition to that arrangement. It is a relationship which occurs among the constituents of the arrangement. When I note that I am not the same thing as Jesse, when I note that I am the mind of Jesse, I am admitting that I do not exist as a thing. I am not a thing, but a relationship composed of relationships. I am the unification of nested relationships which occurs at a particular locus in space and time. As that unification does not occur at all times and at all places, it is necessarily subjective. Look around the room or out upon the street. Do you wonder why you can't see inside another room, or see the location as it was a million years ago? You do not wonder that. Your point of view is situated in time and space, with proximity to some things and distance from others. Where are the photons which express the shape of dinosaurs upon my back lawn? Have they disappeared? They exist, but they're not here with me, falling now upon my retina. The contents of consciousness are composed of something here and now, an informational landscape for me to overlook, laundered from the world's signals into neural dynamics. I am the experiencing of those dynamics. There is a relationship between me and my contents. Neither myself nor the contents exist without each other. I'm not a thing, and they are not things. The thing is that which obtains in their relation. I'll share with you a few excerpts from the Tao Te Ching which pertain to the idea of substance and nothingness. This is from chapter 6. The spirit of emptiness is immortal. It is called the Great Mother because it gives birth to heaven and earth. From chapter 11. Thirty spokes are joined together in a wheel, but it is the center hole that allows the wheel to function. We mold clay into a pot, but it is the emptiness inside that makes the vessel useful. We fashion wood for a house, but it is the emptiness inside that makes it livable. We work with the substantial, but the emptiness is what we use. From chapter 40. All movement returns to the Tao. Weakness is how the Tao works. All of creation is born from substance. Substance is born of nothingness. And from chapter 73. The Tao of the universe does not compete, yet wins. Does not speak, yet responds. Does not command, yet is obeyed and does not act but is good at directing. The nets of heaven are wide, but nothing escapes its grasp. There is undeniable beauty in these passages, and a good measure of truth. These words heaven and the great mother and the Tao can all be understood in perfectly natural terms, and I think this is the way that they were intended. Substance is born of nothingness. That sums the universe up quite nicely. 
When I think about consciousness as that which unifies contents, I can think of no better analogy than to a vessel. Nobody complains that we are acting dualistically when we use a cup. There is the object made of porcelain or whatever, then there is the function which is to contain and hold. The neural correlates of consciousness are the vessel. The space inside is the mind, and the water which fills the space is the content. Each of us is trapped inside our own vessel, sensing only the motions of the water. All the world outside is an inference.